0: Chapter 19, Part 1 of *Popular History of Ireland*, Book 11 by Thomas Darcy Magee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. The last session of the Irish Parliament, the Legislative Union of Great Britain and Ireland. When the Irish Parliament met for the last time on the 15th of January 1800, the position of the Union question stood thus: twenty-seven new peers had been added to the House of Lords, where the Castle might therefore reckon with safety on a majority of three to one. Of the Lord Spiritual, only Dr. Marley of Waterford, and Dr. Dixon of Down and Connor, had the courage to side with their country against their order. In the Commons there was an infusion of some fifty new borough members, many of them general officers, such as Needham and Packenham, all of them nominees of the castle, except Mr. Soren, returned for Blessington, and Mr. Grattan at the last moment for Wicklow the great constitutional body of the bar had, at a general meeting the previous December, declared against the measure by 162 to 33. Another powerful body, the bankers, had petitioned against it, in the interest of the public credit. The Catholic bishops, in their annual meeting, had taken up a position of neutrality as a body, but under the artful management of Lord Castlereagh, the archbishops of Dublin and Tom with the Bishop of Cork, and some others, were actively employed in counteracting anti-union movements among the people. Although the vast majority of that people had too much reason to be disgusted and discontented with the legislation of the previous three years, above seven hundred thousand of them petitioned against the measure, while all the signatures which could be obtained in its favour, by the use of every means at the command of the castle, did not much exceed seven thousand. The houses were opened on the 15th of January. The Viceroy, not going down, his message was read in the Lords by the Chancellor, and in the Commons by the Chief Secretary. It did not directly refer to the basis laid down in England, nor to the subject matter itself, but the leaders of the Castle Party in both houses took care to supply the deficiency. In the Lords, proxies included, Lord Clare had 75 to 26 for his Union address. In the Commons, Lord Castlereagh congratulated the country on the improvement which had taken place in public opinion since the former session. He briefly sketched his plan of union, which, while embracing the main propositions of Mr. Pitt, secured the church establishment, bid high for the commercial interests, hinted darkly of emancipation to the Catholics, and gave the proprietors of boroughs to understand that their interest in those convenient constituencies would be capitalized, and a good round sum given to buy out their perpetual patronage. In amendment to the address, Sir Lawrence Parsons moved, seconded by Mr. Savage of Down, that the House would maintain intact the Constitution of 82, and the debate proceeded on this motion. Posenby replied to Castlereagh, Plunkett and Bush were answering for the future judges, Sir George Daly and Luke Fox, Toller contributed his farce, and Dr. Duganen his fanaticism. Through the long hours of the winter's night the eloquent war was vigorously maintained. One who was himself a distinguished actor in the struggle, Sir Jonah Barrington, has thus described it. Every mind, he says, was at its stretch, every talent was in its vigor, it was a momentous trial, and never was so general and so deep a sensation felt in any country. Numerous British noblemen and commoners were present at that and the succeeding debate, and they expressed opinions of Irish eloquence which they had never before conceived, nor ever after had the opportunity of appreciating. Every man on that night seemed to be inspired by the subject. Speeches more replete with talent and energy on both sides never were heard in the Irish Senate. It was a vital subject. The sublime, the eloquent, the figurative orator, the plain, the connected, the metaphysical reasoner, the classical, the learned, and the solemn declaimer, in a succession of speeches so full of energy and enthusiasm, so interesting in their nature, so important in their consequence, created a variety of sensations even in the bosom of a stranger, and could scarcely fail of exciting some sympathy with a nation which was doomed to close for that school of eloquence which had so long given character and celebrity to Irish talent. At the early dawn a special messenger from Wicklow, just arrived in town, roused Henry Grattan from his bed. He had been elected the previous night for the borough of Wicklow, which cost him twenty-four hundred pounds sterling, and this was the bearer of the returning officer's certificate. His friends, weak and feeble as he was, wished him to go down to the house, and his heroic wife seconded their appeals. It was seven o'clock in the morning of the sixteenth when he reached College Green, the scene of his first triumphs twenty years before. Mr. Egan, one of the staunchest anti-unionists, was at the moment, on some rumor probably of his approach, apostrophizing warmly the father of the Constitution of 82, when that striking apparition appeared at the bar. Worn and emaciated beyond description, he appeared leaning on two of his friends, Arthur Moore and W. B. Posenby. He wore his volunteer uniform, blue with red facings, and advanced to the table, where he removed his cocked hat, bowed to the speaker, and took the oaths. After Mr. Egan had concluded, he begged permission from his seat beside Plunkett to address the house sitting, which was granted, and then in a discourse of two hours' duration, full of his ancient fire and vigour, he asserted once again, by the divine right of intellect, his title to be considered the first commoner of Ireland. Gifted men were not rare in that assembly, but the inspiration of the heart the uncontrollable utterance of a supreme spirit not less than the extraordinary faculty of condensation in which perhaps he has never had a superior in our language gave the grattan of 1800 the same preeminence among his contemporaries that was conceded to the grattan of 1782 after 18 hours discussion the division was taken when the result of the long recess was clearly seen for the amendment there appeared 96 for the address 138 members The Union majority, therefore, was forty-two. It was apparent from that moment that the representation of the people in Parliament had been effectually corrupted, that that assembly was no longer the safeguard of the liberties of the people. Other ministerial majorities confirmed this impression. A measure enabled ten thousand of the Irish militia to enter the regular army, and to substitute English militia in their stead, followed, an inquiry into outrages committed by the sheriff and military in King's County was voted down. A similar motion, somewhat later, in relation to officials in Tipperary, met the same fate. On the 5th of February, a formal message proposing a basis of union was received from His Excellency, and debated for twenty consecutive hours, from four o'clock of one day till twelve of the next. Grattan, Plunkett, Parnell, Posenby, Sorin were, as always, eloquent and able— but again the division told for the Minister 160 to 117, Majority 43. On the 17th of February, the House went into committee on the proposed Articles of Union, and the Speaker, John Foster, being now on the floor, addressed the House with great ability in review of Mr. Pitt's recent Union speech, which he designated a paltry production. But again a Majority mustered, at the nod of the Minister 161 to 140, a few not fully committed, showing some last faint spark of independence. It was on this occasion that Mr. Corry, Chancellor of the Exchequer, member for Newry, made for the third or fourth time that session an attack on Grattan, which brought out on the instant that famous Philippic against Corry, unequalled in our language, for its well-suppressed passion and finely condensed denunciation. A duel followed, as soon as there was sufficient light. The Chancellor was wounded, After which the Castlereagh tactics of fighting down the opposition received an immediate and lasting check. End of chapter nineteen. Part one. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org.